This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. Being inappropriate is a scary and powerful tool that user experience professionals should use more often, taking advantage of humor and non-traditional forms of communication. This session, presented by Sapient Consultant Dan Willis, explores ways of intentionally and skillfully exceeding historically respected boundaries, including creating culturally inappropriate presentations, running culturally inappropriate meetings, and delivering culturally inappropriate documentation. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Well, uh, before we get started, is there anybody that would uh, say that they're shameless at this point? Anybody say they're shameless? Raise your arm high and prove that you're shameless. All right. If you're shameless, come up this way. I got to talk to you for a minute. I promise no harm will come to you. Yeah, we're going to believe you. Okay, you do that. And you blew bubbles from where you are. And, you, and what we're going for is basically you do whatever you think is right, but it would be nice if we had bubbles constantly the whole show. And it would be great if you were well distributed. That would just be great, but you can do whatever you want. Okay. That's going to be an important part of the presentation. Uh, I'm lying, by the way. It's not going to be an important part of the presentation. I do, and I want you to do it wherever you want. That's nice. Gentlemen, Miss Kennedy, I would like to introduce Mr. Victor Norman. Vic, this is Mr. Paul Evans, Mr. Evans' son. Mr. Allison, special assistant to Mr. Evans. To George Rockton, Chief Counsel for Beauty Soap, and Miss Kennedy, you already know. Mr. Evans, may I present Mr. Victor Norman? <laughs> Mr. Victor, Mr. Norman, you do a disgusting thing. But you'll always remember what I just did. You see, Mr. Norman, if nobody remembers your brand, you aren't going to sell any soap. Check? Check. Check. You see, Mr. Foreman, you see, Mr. Norman, I've got my own ideas on how to sell. And selling by demonstration. Any other way is all wet. See what I mean? So my name is Dan Willis, and I actually am doing the presentation. Don't let the bubbles throw you off. Um, and I always, I saw that film many years ago, and I said, I don't know what it means, but I've got to use it at some point in my life. And by God, I found the reason to use it. I found the excuse. Um, so uh, this is actually the second that, that I've seen. This is the second Marshall McLuhan quote of the, of the conference, which makes me think that he's actually going to become more and more relevant every year that we keep doing our jobs. There's sort of some, he's picking up momentum. Uh, he's very dead, so there's only a set amount of stuff to come from it. But I think this is a great way to think about culture. Culture um, is like water that's all around the fish. The fish, as far as we know, is not particularly aware of that water. Uh, if they are, uh, it doesn't change the fact that uh, their life depends on it, that it also defines it. 
that the culture is very powerful. So I thought it, I thought it was a pretty, pretty good image, and I think it was relevant to Mr. McLuhan's thoughts. It's unseen, it's essential. I think understanding culture is really useful, and we're going to talk about doing things that are then culturally inappropriate. And the reason why I think that's a good idea, <laughs> the reason I think that's a good idea is because user experience as a profession is basically culturally inappropriate when the culture is an aquarium built by a bunch of engineers a couple of decades ago. So there's sort of a nice alignment there, I think. Anybody know what's going on in this picture? <laughs> Just yell out. No clue? Hair transplant, good guess. Uh, well, it is actually, in fact, nothing sexual. Uh, it's, it's actually very, very much family-based. Uh, he's picking the nits out of his hair. And when this was painted in the early 1600s, pretty much from the Middle Ages through the early 1600s, nit picking uh, was, uh, was a family affair. It was a, it was a communal thing. It was a bonding exercise that people would go through and absolutely essential. Just 100 years later, or even 200 years later, and, and certainly today, when you see that stuff, it's offensive. It's like, it's like you picked his nits. It makes me feel like that. And it really touches at that what is appropriate for the culture. So the first slide is about fish. It's about water. Water is culture. The second slide says, well, you know, what's appropriate to that culture, it changes. It changes in big radical moves over time. Hunting lice by candlelight, in case anyone wants to get a picture of it at home. <laughs> so how many people are familiar with this book? Pretty good crowd, pretty good crowd. So there was a guy named Gordon McKenzie. Gordon McKenzie was an alcoholic, but he doesn't mention that in this book. And he was insane, which he mentions in this book quite a bit. And he worked at Hallmark for 30 years, and he didn't fit. Hallmark, Hallmark is full of very conservative, gray-suited gentlemen. Uh, at the time, it was lots of gentlemen. There were some women. But it's a very conservative Midwestern company. So the fact that this lunatic worked there for 30 years in itself makes you go, hmm? Uh, he was very skilled at what he did. And what he did was he never really conformed and he took advantage of that. Um, and then the company took advantage of it. They would invite him to stuff. They weren't really sure what to expect, and sometimes they got a lot more than they expected. Uh, but he wrote about it, and that's the other thing that he did particularly well is he talked about the things that he did. He put it in this book, and then geeks like me and the few other people that raised their hand read it and go, oh my god, I can't believe he really did that. Well, one of the things he did, he got invited to a sales conference. It's one of those annual sales conferences where they fly everybody in from all over the country. And uh, they were supposed to come up with new ideas, new bold ideas. And so he went in there, in the and they invited him. They weren't really sure what to expect. And so they bring him in, and he sits in the back of the room, and he goes nuts because they've got this big, nasty overhead projector with the fans blowing, and it's noisy. And they put these big overlays on it with just packed, full of figures. We all bitch about PowerPoint, but it's nothing compared to these overheads from a couple of decades ago with just packed numbers. And they're droning on and on, and Gordon McKenzie's in the back of the room just going insane. He's like, these guys are dead in the water. I don't, I don't know how they do it. Well, they took a lunch break, and he's like, okay, I'm going to lunch. And he talked to the woman who had invited him, and he said, can I run the afternoon session? And she goes, okay. He runs up to his hotel room, where he just happens to have little finger symbols and a whole bunch of tea lights. Now, it tells you something about Gordon McKenzie that on a business trip, he makes sure he packs his little symbols and his tea lights. 
And he goes back into the room when, actually, he, goes, he beats everybody else back in the room. When they come back into this very stiff, conservative boardroom with a big, you can picture the table, the same one that the dude spit on, probably. Very conservative paneled room, right? And they come back in and the lights are out. And there's tea lights all along the table, lighting up, lighting up. And as they come in, he has them come in, and maybe he has them take their shoes off, I'm not really sure. And he leads them through, using the symbols as sort of a, uh, a consistent noise throughout the process, he leads them through guided imagery. And I don't know if any of you guys have been into this, it's kind of interesting. You know, they do things like, you know, picture that you're swallowing a flower, imagine what color the flower is, the flower, imagine it landing in your stomach, imagine it blossoming, what color is it, those kinds of things. And surprisingly, these guys who all look like Gregory Peck and were in gray suits, um, they let it happen. And they started to go along with it. And for about 20 minutes, they went through this guided imagery and some other meditative techniques. And when the lights came up, these guys exploded with ideas. They were all over the place. Oh, we should do this, we should do that. And they put together this proposal that was radical for Hallmark. And Hallmark actually didn't freak out. They, they said, okay, well, we'll try some of this stuff. That's great. And so McKinsey talks about well, why did that happen? And one of the ways that he describes it, he says, well, when they were talking about numbers, they were talking about history. But this is Genesis. And history comes after you have Genesis. So they had it flipped. So it was, it was, it was culturally appropriate for them to plow through these meaningless numbers. But it was, it was uh, functionally inappropriate. It didn't work. And so how did he explain what he did? Well, he says, I gave them the chance to escape that culture. I did it for a short period of time. Now, he didn't go in the room and say, you'll never be shackled by that culture again. Because, in fact, he'd lose more than half the room. There's a lot of risk-averse people. They'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? And they'd run out. It was important that he said, you get to escape for now within the boundaries of this meeting. You're safe. I will protect you as you escape. And it worked. So I want to talk about inappropriate meetings. And like some of the stuff I talk about, I'm actually not going to talk about inappropriate meetings. Uh, for this one, a gentleman named Ravi Kurian, who I work with in the DC office of Sapient, is going to talk about it. And we're going to listen. See, these listen. clients constantly go to meetings. And um, integrated product teams, IPTs, and working groups. Uh, and what the first thing they do is they show up at this this meeting room, wherever it is, and they say, "Is this the right room? Is this the right meeting?" Yes. And then immediately they open up their laptops and begin to work on something completely not related to the meeting that they're at. And they call this multitasking. Uh, what what ends up happening is that they don't pay any attention to the meeting that they've come to but they spend all their time on their machines. So when Sapient is a sort of a passive attendant uh, or an attendee at this meeting, um, there's nothing we can do. We sort of helplessly watch while absolutely nothing gets accomplished. A good example of that is you know, many IPTs will circulate a charter. And a charter is what is the purpose of the IPT, how often are you going to get together, things like that. We've gone to IPT meetings where the charter in draft form has been circulating for six months. And that's all that's talked about. Nothing happens. So every once in a while, it'll be Sapien's turn to facilitate or host one of these meetings. And the first thing we do is we, we come into the meeting and we, we, do, we put up an agenda that says what we're actually going to talk about during this meeting. We put up objectives, which is what we'd like to have accomplished at the end of this meeting. And then we put up ground rules, and we insist that the rules be enforced. That, 
And then we say, these are the ground rules, and this is what we'd like you to adhere to, and it's a dollar fine every time you break a ground rule. And uh, everybody sort of looks, and they chuckle, and they laugh, and ha, 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 that's great. And then we start finding them. And they're shocked. They're, they stop. They get concerned. It's like, wait a second, is this... Is this part of the per diem? Is this how, how, how are you expensing? Is it, is it, what is this? No, this is your money, and we're going to take it from you unless you start paying attention. So the ground rule says you will not use an electronic device during this meeting. You will not engage in side conversations during this meeting. You will not use your phone during this meeting. Every time you do that, we will be fining you. At one such meeting, we had a guy who said, literally, I'm not paying any fines. And he said, I'm on a very fixed income, and my wife and I work very hard to make ends meet, and so I will not be able to pay any fines. In fact, if you require me to pay fines, I will no longer be able to participate in this meeting. Something very interesting happened. What happened was everybody else around the team sort of rolled their eyes with this collective kind of groan and said almost in unison, give me a break. And this was terrific. Because all of a sudden, the, the air had been completely let out of this blowhard. And um, he had to conform at that point, or he would not have represented his organization well. And he had come across as a complete wet blanket in you know what was meant to be a useful meeting. And so this is a sort of an example of where we sort of come in and we try to take what is generally fairly unproductive chunks of time and make them very productive just by imposing a very sapient kind of order uh, to these meetings. A sapient kind of order. Sounds terrifying, doesn't it? <laughs> I played this back for Ravi, and he's like, uh, that part about the, the people in the galley ship, are you sure about that one? <laughs> Trust me, it'll be fine. So what happened? The existing culture was distracted. It was unfocused. It was okay for people to show up to meetings, and nothing came out of it for week after week after week after week. That's what the culture said was okay. What are the tactics that, that Ravi talks about? He talks about going in there and demanding accountability. And demanding accountability, he doesn't get into this too much, so you'll have to just trust me on this one. They demand accountability first of themselves. They say, okay, so if the meeting starts late, we pay the fine. If we mess up who we invite, we pay the fine. So demand accountability. But first, they demand it from themselves. I say themselves, from ourselves, whatever. That's what Sapien does. They demand it themselves. And then the reason they're doing that is so that they then can demand that accountability of the rest of the team, which they do. And they make it personal. So it's, uh, they do usually get into conversations about what they're using the money for, and I could care less. What's important about the money is it's your money. That means it's personal. Even if it's just a dollar, even if the guy says he can't pay $2, it's now is yours. There's something about you, and that's really powerful. And what were the results? Well, generally, it gets full participation. Generally, uh, uh, people buy into it so much that we get business sometimes. They say, hey, Sapien, could you come in and do that thing you do, do that, run our meetings for us? And we don't do it. It's not a side job. It's a, a part of our other job. And they say, no, no, we don't want you for the rest of the stuff. We just want you for that little piece. And I'm like, no, it doesn't really work that way. And in the fact that the, the example that Ravi used, it was so powerful that they policed themselves, which, which you can just imagine, now that you've seen a picture of them, you can imagine going, oh, this is cool. Because <laughs> he was sitting there going, what do I do? This guy's not going to pay the fine. No one's ever refused before. Um, and they self-police. That's how powerful it was. So inappropriate meetings where somebody has said, I understand the culture. I'm going to do something counter to it. And it's going to be effective because of that. 
which leads us to an intermission. Okay, heads up, heads up, heads up, coming at you. Okay, got chocolate coming that way. Bit of honey, bit of honey, most, most underrated candy of the generation. I don't want to throw it all the way to the back row because um, if I throw it that hard, I might actually take an eye out. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to throw the lollipops either, so let's just spread these guys around. Lollipops, bad idea. I lost something. What was it, candy? Okay, as long as it's not the microphone. All right, so Julia gets the, you're, you're in charge, make that happen. And uh, here, you do that one, and, and you get chocolate. You can eat them all if you want, or you can pass them off, you can do whatever you want. I love when I run back through while the bubbles follow me. Okay, that was intermission. Where's my zapper? Ah, there it is, okay. I'm out of breath now. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about inappropriate presentations. So that first one was inappropriate meetings. Let's talk about inappropriate presentations. And once again, I'm not going to talk about it. I got somebody else talking about it. So the story is this. Um, I'm 25 years old, and I'm three months, maybe four months, into my new job as one of the first interface designers at Adobe Systems. My boss, who was the engineering manager for Photoshop and Illustrator, suggested to me that they've got a tech summit coming up. So Adobe does those typical corporate, I mean, big company corporate thing where they fly in all the engineers from Seattle, Minnesota, etc., cetera, uh, to engage in a three-day set of seminars. So my boss, Greg, says, hey, I'd love you to give a talk to the engineering team about what we're doing. So okay. A little scared, but okay. So we show up for the day, and I walk into a room, and there's at least 500 engineers. 500 engineers, 500 of the smartest engineers in Silicon Valley, for what that's worth, too. Guys who knew all kinds of stuff, etc. Um, very good at what they do. So I get up on stage, and I'm starting to you know, feel a little nervous, and I get into my talk and just start to describe who I am, where I came from, what I'm doing, and uh, the concept of starting to you know, consist, make consistent the interfaces for Photoshop, Illustrator, and InDesign. Somewhere about five minutes into my 30-minute talk, I bring up the notion that what we need to do is what Microsoft did. And I could literally feel the room just, I, I lost the room. I mean, I just literally lost the room. All these engineers heard the words, we should do what Microsoft did, and they suddenly realized, who the hell's this guy? We're gonna do what? You want us to be like Microsoft? They're like the worst engineers on the planet. Total competitive thing, so I, I just lost the room. And I spent the next 25 minutes justifying the notion that we should be the Microsoft of the design world and, and what Microsoft did with the office strategy for, for better or worse was the right thing to do and we should learn from their mistakes. They weren't going to have it. They were arguing with me, telling me I was stupid, uh, it, just, it was just crazy. So at the end of the whole thing, I walk out of the presentation and I'm saying to myself, I just lost my job. <laughs> I'm done. I'm never going to work on software ever again. I just got the dream job at 25 working at Adobe and doing Photoshop Illustrator PageMaker, and I just blew it. And five years later, Creative Suite 1 shipped, CS1 shipped, and uh, there was some vindication there because it worked. Tough. That, that was a tough crowd. You guys are much easier to deal with than those guys. So what was the culture he was going in? Well, it was engineer-dominated, where interaction design was really fledgling. It was really saying, hey, we are here, we are here. And the engineers were like, what? I don't think so, dude. 
and they hate Microsoft. It was just it was built into the culture that they hated Microsoft. Uh, you know, some of them it's because they couldn't get the job there, and others because they chose not to work there, and then others just because everybody else was doing it, because that's the way culture works. And so, what are the pre inappropriate, the intentionally inappropriate tactics that that he used? Well, he talked about the user. He said, "Hey, the user needs this stuff to make sense. I know why you guys are doing the way you're doing it, but uh, you know, the user, the poor user sitting there, they're just confounded. They, they have no idea how to deal with it." And then the other thing he did was he, he named the 600-pound gorilla. He said, we should be like Microsoft. And you can just imagine how quiet that room got as soon as he said that. And the results, it happened. Now, it probably would have happened if he never would have given that presentation. And the, the, the other side of the story, the, the, sort of the Paul Harvey, the rest of the story is to find out who put a 24-year-old in front of telling these engineers for the first time, we're going to do what Microsoft does. I don't know that story, but it's interesting. But he's right. He's right. It, it did happen. It was a way for the culture to go, what? And then move forward. Now we're going uh, to uh, have another intermission. <laughs> OK. Let's see. If this one sucks, then somebody else has to come up here and try it better than me. I tried this in practice before the presentation started, and it didn't work at all. And Melzer told me why. All right? Uh, all right. Now, this could take an eye out, so you guys be careful. <laughs> Chandelier. Chandelier, you got it. Nice. It had distance, but man, that was ugly. That was like government contracting right there. I say that with love. Now that back row is saying, you know, I was mad when I didn't get the candy, but I'm, now I'm really hating not getting the planes. Two more. Here we go. Oh, that one flew. That one actually flew. No, at the end, it, it fell gracefully. All right. Last one. Here we go. All right. Whoever's got those planes, you can have them. Make sure you pick up your shooter at the end. Uh, or now, whatever, whatever you're comfortable with. Uh, I'm, I'm easy either way. You can see how uptight this whole presentation is. So, All right. Let's, let's handle a question on the way. The biggest problem with questions is there's no floor mic. And that whole thing about, let me restate the question, doesn't work so well. So I'm going to do what I learned from Donna at her presentation. I'm going to go, what? <laughs> Great. That's very awkward. Um, <laughs> fine. So, is this distracting? <laughs> I think your whole point was that doing something really inappropriate worked for him. But I feel like, at least in that example, he didn't need to do something that inappropriate. He could have said, I know my audience. I know they hate Microsoft. So I'm going to make my whole presentation be, Microsoft sucks. But one thing they did well, we could do. And then he wouldn't have had all the animosity against it. And I was hoping you could address it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, uh, well, statement. Deal with that, Willis, which, is, which I, I respect and love. Um, yeah, I mean, no, he's, he doesn't fit my, my argument completely. But it was such a great example of a presentation where culture was, you know, directly confronted and, and, and freaked people out because of that culture. Uh, I think what we're seeing is, a tw and he's not 24 now, he's 34 now, but I think we're a 24-year-old not realizing that when he said that, everyone's going to shit themselves. Um, but it's a great example of realizing, first of all, how powerful that culture is and what happens when you go counter to it, that it has effects not necessarily as negative as you might think, right? You know, if he would have said to somebody else, I'm going to tell him, they might have said, ooh, dude. So it's kind of helpful that he went in there kind of Pollyannish about it, right? Um, yeah, and that's all I'm going to say about it, because that's a good answer. So now I'm going to talk about inappropriate deliverables. 
Only I'm not going to talk about it. Eric Reese is going to talk here this and is, over uh, in the Venetian room where he's burning it down at the same time. A, um, a big piece of software. It was an internal search engine for websites. And surprisingly for a software company, they were not nearly as laid back as they pretended to be. And their CEO in particular was a very, very stiff individual. And I had to present uh, a flowchart that was going to show how they were actually going to tackle their cold calls from their, uh, from their sales office. And I grabbed him and I addressed him by his, by his first name and said, Jack, listen, hold up this one end of the paper and here's some tape. And I stuck a piece of tape on his cheek that he could use. And we taped this thing to the wall. And he was sort of, well, nobody ever calls me by my first name. And yet who is, what is he? He's taping things on the wall. And after he got over the initial shock, he realized that, yeah, this is a work in progress. And he was up there moving the sticky notes around and looking at the process. We ended up in about half an hour getting a much better project because they understood where I was coming from and what I had done but they were also capable of seeing alright but here's something that we could actually do better or okay this is in fact a fair representation of what we're doing now but it needs to be changed and we can see thanks to this chart that things are different and I think that if I had presented a nice deliverable they would have said, okay, that's fine, and then we'll move on to something else. And here they got actively involved, and then when the system was actually up and running, they could see, yeah, th that's really great, because that was when Eric glued all that stuff on our wall. And uh, unfortunately, it also pulled off a little paint when we took it down. <laughs> <laughs> so you left your mark. So I left my mark. I have a feeling that our industry, particularly the information architects, um, instead of standing behind their ideas, hide behind their deliverables. Mm -hmm. And they spend an awful lot of time uh, gussying things up that are basically just glorified boxes and arrows. I've always liked to create fairly primitive boxes and arrows and other kinds of deliverables and then let people, uh, let, make it sure that people understand that they can write on them, that they can, that they can, they can mess them up in some way. So the existing culture says, you know, this software company expected very slick deliverables, right? They expected full-color tabloid pieces of paper explaining it. And, and, and what they, uh, a real extension of that culture, whether intentional or accidental, and I think it was probably both for this individual, um, was that distance you get. That there's consultant on that side of the table, probably the same table we've used for the other examples, right? Long, long brown wooden table. Consultants on one side, client on the other. You guys talk to us. We go, yeah, okay, yeah, fine. And, and Eric didn't care. He's like, okay, move the table out of the way now. Let's start taping stuff up. He broke that wall down. He, he intentionally uses low fidelity materials, and he got the client involved in that hands-on creation of it. So what was the result of it? Well, this is a key one. It didn't just have an impact on the, on the, com on the client. It actually gave his company, gave Eric's company, a better project. They improved the project. He understood what was going on better. He was able to get deeper into it. So it's not just, I can solve the problem earlier, so I'm really running once the project starts, which is absolutely true, but he actually changed the scope of the project, made it more appropriate. <laughs> I didn't mean to use that word. <laughs> he made it fit. And now Jared Spool's gonna pull the same trick. He spoke earlier, he's speaking now. They should pay him twice. We were doing a video conferencing system, and, uh, we had created this paper prototype of, of the video conferencing system. It was all paper. So the way you saw the video was we'd use Polaroids and we had different different Polaroids of the same person with different expressions. And 
one of the developers would play that person when you had the video conference. You they would put down different pictures depending on what they were saying. You know, a happy expression, a sad one, an angry one. So when they, you know they told you that the project was three weeks late, they or when you told them that they would put down the angry one and say, "Why is it three weeks late?" You know, so you're having this conversation. We you know we just gone into the accounting department and taken pictures of these random people and these different expressions, and we were using them as the people you were talking to in the paper prototype. And, and we worked our way through a whole bunch of of, of Iterations and we've made changes and we'd really sort of worked this thing up and and uh, uh, we were just finishing up a day of testing like our 20th user uh, uh, and and uh, the VP of engineering comes in and says uh, tomorrow morning uh, we're, we have a board meeting and I thought he was just basically telling me that the um, that the room wasn't going to be available and I said okay uh, we'll have our stuff out here he said no 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 you, you need to leave it here because I want you you're on the agenda. I said, no, no, this thing is a mess. Right? You know, it, 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 we've been iterating over 20 different users. Things were in different colors, and, and there were, you know, it was just, it was a complete disaster of a, of a prototype at this point. It, uh, it looked like it had been edited 25 times, which it had been. You know, it was just, just this mess. And um, he said, no, no, yeah, I need you. I need you. It'll just be like 10 minutes. You just need to show it. They need. There's been questions what we've been spending our money on, and I, I need you to, to, to do this. Uh, so, uh, uh, so we're all in our suit and tie, and the board, of, the investors are there, and and, and the investors are uh, uh, saying, you know, they, they come around to our part, and I start to take out this these paper, and I'm explaining that this is what we're doing, and this this Texan, this big guy, big Texan, right? He says, says leans forward on the table, says. You mean to tell me that you've been spending all my money on paper? I said, yes, sir. And this paper somehow works? I go, well, sort of. And I start to show him how it works. He said, so I could use this paper to make a video connection? And I said, said uh, well, yeah, yeah. You, you, you just, here, I'll put down the screen. And I put it down. And I show him that he just presses this button and it starts the connection. He goes, so I press this and I put down the thing. Oh, look. And he sees the image, and, 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 and he starts talking to the, to the picture. How are you doing? And the, the developer was sitting inside and starts, uh, I'm doing fine. And, and so he's having, and, and, and then one of the, uh, this little Japanese guy can I try? I would like to try. And so, and, so, and so he comes and tries. And next thing you know, they're all, they're all playing with this. And we're, we're supposed to be 10 minutes on the agenda. An hour later, we're still, everyone's got to have a turn, right? We're still playing with the paper prototype. Finally, the, 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 the Texan leans forward and he says to the president of the company, he says, I think in 10 years, this is the best use of my money I have ever seen. <laughs> so, the existing culture is its uh, typical, uh, uh, not that I've ever seen this room, so it's all in my imagination, but these deep-pocketed investors who sit around and must talk about interesting stuff where they decide, yes, I'm going to give you literally millions of dollars to do the thing I'm going to do. And what did he do? He, out of necessity, because he didn't plan it, uh, he walked in there with a messy prototype, and he had to explain, oh, this is what this means, and this is what this means. Completely counter to the culture that had been built up by how in, in those investors had talked to people who, wanted, who had a hand in their pocket, who was looking for money. And the investors became the participants, and they had fun. And, 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 and the combination of that, you know, where they, they are participating, they're having fun with it, 
they get a deeper understanding of that prototype than any brochure or any $10,000 presentation could have put together. Very powerful. Oh, it's true. In five slides, five slides, just say five slides, I'm going to be looking down there and saying, well, what I'd ideally like to do is have somebody say, I have a problem, and I want the group to help me figure out how to be inappropriate in a way that's going to really work for me. Okay, so if that doesn't happen, but keep thinking about it. Then I want somebody to say, I've got, great, I, I've got a great uh, thing where I did something like this. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, Willis, but you know, now that you said it that way, yeah, yeah, I got one of those. So, so if we can't get the first one, I want to hear that one. It's coming in five slides. Did I mention five slides? And if you can't do that, we can do questions, but that's just me talking, so who wants that? On to the presentation. So there is a culture for presentations, right? You walked in the room, you had a set of expectations, you had things you'd seen before, you had things in, to a large part, because we're a small enough community, more than half of you have spoken at conferences, if not this one, some other conference. So what things have I done since you've walked in the room that are just inappropriate to the culture of presentations? Just yell them out. You're not wearing shoes. I didn't intro myself, I'm not wearing shoes, what else? Interaction. There's interaction. Underwear. I am in fact wearing underwear, <laughs> trust me. Although it's blue, and it has this little tag in the back that's real itchy. And so this morning I was like, well, this is going to be really geeky, but I'm going to go ahead and tuck my T-shirt inside of it. And then I was walking around and there's this like, blue pan here. I'm like, okay, I'm retarded. I'm not that weird. I'm, I'm not that far gone down the road of no chance of ever being cool in my life. <laughs> so there's that. Anything else? Any? Bubbles. Bubbles, good one. What else? Okay. I threw stuff at you. What the hell was I thinking? What was the effect? Well, you did. What else? <laughs> okay, so maybe people paid attention. Is that it? Thrown off, off your balance? Kept awake. You have definitely been awake the whole time, I noticed. Does it take a little pressure off of you? <laughs> no, actually, I'm sweating bullets, man. I am dying up here. <laughs> the easiest, for anybody who hasn't given presentations and the rest of you guys who have given presentations, which is like half and half, um, you guys can back me up. The easiest kind of presentation to do in the world, but the least satisfying is... Slide seven. <laughs> click, click. Anyone? 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 Thank you. Click. I'll be available for questions later. Um, so that's the easiest thing. The hardest thing is to sit there and say, okay, well, if I step off the stage, will I trip? If I do trip, will I break anything? Can I still continue on? Those kind of questions. Um, I couldn't have done this my first presentation. Let's put it that way. And I'm not near as relaxed as hopefully I'm coming off because I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about some of the stuff we, we just did talk about, some of the stuff you've seen it in action. You've been a participant to it. So let me talk about some tips about moving forward. When I tried to get people to give me stories, and believe me, you saw four stories, it's because I asked 400 people for stories. Uh, more than half of them thought it was a cool idea and really thought about it. Um, and, and out of that, I got four. And the reason it sounds so bad is because when you're asking somebody to do something like this and it's so hard apparently to come up with them. You get them wherever you can, even if it's in a very loud dining hall in Vancouver, right after they've spoken at a conference, you grab what you can get. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of apologizing for that, but not really. Um, but one of the things that's confusing about talking about the topic is they went right to rude, and they went right to, yeah, I made this comment and it was really funny. And that was great, it was interesting, but it's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a process where you identify the culture and you do a sort of ROI on it, right? You say, okay, here's the danger, this could go wrong, Here's the possible advantage. For me, I'm going to go with the advantage. I think it's worth doing. And you want to do that in your workplace. You want to sit there every single time you're thinking about doing something counter to the culture. Unlike the guy who spoke and said, you know, we should follow Microsoft. 
very dangerous thing to do. And you, you see the result. The guy thought he didn't have a job anymore. He's not kidding. He, he went in the hallway. He was pretty sure he was done. And you know, at 24, that's like, it's not, oh, I lost a job. It's like, oh, my life is over. Um, maybe I should get my master's. Um, Uh, we really want to think about this before we do it, and we want to, we've been intentional about it. And part of the risk thing is not, here's the bad things that could happen, why well, better not do it. It's more like, well, can I handle the bad things? Can I handle if I tripped here and got embarrassed? Yeah, yeah, that'll be okay. If, if the bubbles really didn't work and people are like, bubbles, ew. It's like, okay, I, I, I can do that. So you want to do an ROI on this stuff. You can tell from the examples, and I can tell you from my own experience, getting tactile is really important. You get people's hands moving. You get them touching stuff. It has an impact it wouldn't have otherwise. Personal, that's the one, that's the, if you don't remember anything else about the one about they charged the dollars, it's because it's personal, it's because you can't separate yourself, right? Eric did the same thing. We had a client, he had a client who wanted to be on that side of the table. He said, no, no, you're not going to be on that side of the table. I'm making it personal. I'm going to get something that you personally hold dear. And this stuff is funny. There's a reason why humor is inappropriate. A lot of the best humor, Monty Python is all about taking things and saying, this is how it should be, so let's do the opposite of that. Let's treat things that are completely silly as if they're the most serious things on the planet. Let's take the serious things and treat them like they're the silliest goddamn thing you ever heard. It's funny. Embrace the humor. If nothing else, if you can't use it, if you're in a highly conservative environment, which I still think this is an appropriate approach, you just have to aim smaller space. But you know, even in that environment, if nobody else, it can humor you. You, know? you can walk out of it going, well, it was funny at least, didn't work, but it was funny. <laughs> so I think that's important. That's right, there's just two more slides and we're gonna talk to you guys. We're gonna have about five minutes to do it if I start, talk really fast now, uh, but it's gonna be worth trying. So two slides, two slides, think of your story. So risks, yes, you may get fired. Now, I will talk about my own career. Uh, I was at WashingtonPost.com, I was doing my Gordon McKenzie impression. I hadn't read the book yet, so I didn't know I was doing a Gordon McKenzie impression, only I was doing it a lot worse. I was going to lots of meetings with real standardized newspaper thinking and I was saying, whoa, what do we do this instead? and all sorts of processes. They didn't fire me because of that, but when the bubble burst in the beginning of this millennium, um, and they started to look every quarter going, so we got a director, has no reports. That's a lot of money, hmm. I made it through seven quarters, I didn't make it through eight. I think the inappropriate actions that I had built up over four and a half years didn't help. Uh, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't change a damn thing. I'd hopefully do it a little more skillfully. But uh, I feel good about all that time, even though I was unemployed for six months. My wife was unemployed for six months. Uh, in fact, Julia Stewart saved my life because she hired me when I absolutely had to have a job. So Julia's always going to be on the top five list. Um, so it happens. Uh, it should be part of your ROI. You know, I am not pulling my pants down and walking around doing something sexually offensive. That would, if it got back to sapient, they should fire me. I'm not doing that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about inappropriate. Make your decision. But understand that depending on how often you do this, how you do it, what you're, you, even if you do the good ROI, it is a risk. It's an outside risk. I would say it's an outside risk. The other one that's more prevalent is that you get taken lightly. Oh, yeah, he's the maniac that did that. They turn you in this little box, and they say, oh, don't worry about that little box. Your friends don't do that. Your enemies do that. So if you're in a highly contentious environment like, I don't know, WashingtonPost.com, um, that's going to be your biggest enemy, and you don't even realize it's going on. You're talking to somebody, and you're like, they're not, they're not responding to me the way other people are responding to me. What the hell is that? Uh, unfortunately, I could see this great in the rearview mirror. At the time, I was just like, well, maybe I should try different tactics. That must be the problem. Uh, it happens. It, it's going to happen more often than getting fired, that's for sure. The other thing that's tied to that is that it takes a hell of a lot of energy to do this. This presentation, back to the point of, is this easier? This takes a lot more work than slide 17. 
Um, it's really hard. That's not a reason not to do it. It's hard, you do it. You know, running hurts. So you run and you hurt. Okay, got it. But understand that the people, if you are in a confrontational, aggressive environment, they're not working near as hard as you are because the easiest thing in the world to do is to maintain the status quo. They're exerting no political energy. They're exerting no personal energy. They're not even thinking too hard. So they're fresh. So sometimes you're just exhausted by all this stuff you're trying and you're just a sitting duck and they can come in and do nasty things to you. So again, I'm not trying to scare you away, but you've got to be practical. You've got to be realistic when you think about doing this. So who's got an ex uh, something that they could do this, they think, but they need the group to help them out. You had a lot of time to think about it. No one, no one, we're going to list two, list two, okay, list two. Anybody who's done this? Somebody's got, ah, good one. Timing was perfect, we planned that. You have the coolest name. Her name is Shiloh. When your name is Dan Willis, it's like that close to Joe Smith, and Shiloh is a great name. <laughs> Thanks, it means place of peace. <laughs> uh, costuming, I've used costuming a lot, which gets the suits to loosen up. What do you make them wear? Hats, big funny ties, uh, usually on the girls. <laughs> now, is there like a breaking point where you try this stuff and they're like, no, 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 and when they finally say yes, it's like all of a sudden they're the one dancing on the table? Or is it, is it you get what space you can get? I mean, how does it work? It depends on the crowd. What's the worst that's ever happened? Uh, I don't think anything bad's ever happened with it. It's always fun. That's a great story. That makes a great answer because nothing bad happened. Did you guys catch that? Nothing bad happened. It was worth trying. Anybody else got one? The beeping means I'm out of time. So we're, we're going we're gonna to hear this one. Do one minute for questions. And then I've just uh, walked into rooms that were totally inappropriate for the type of meeting we're having. wasn't a collaborative environment um, when it needed to be, so I'm taking people outside. Keep talking. Just, you know, taking people outside to picnic benches and, you know, or whatever common spaces there are out there. And it's sort of the same effect it has on classrooms of, you know, of kids when they get to go outside is it just sort of re-energizes people. But technically, they were doing the inappropriate thing and you did the appropriate thing. So technically, you were following the culture and doing exactly what the culture told you to do, Oops. which worked, which totally worked, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, got somebody, oh, you're double dipping. I don't know if this would count or not because it feels conservative compared to some of your other examples, but I worked at a consulting company and it was pretty stiff and people were not really in a sort of friendly camaraderie sort of attitude. And so I instigated that we would play Pictionary once a week, nice. which sort of got a more creative thing going. That's great. That's a great example because you know, sometimes when I talked about this, people would say, oh, you don't understand how conservative my organization is. Well, he understands it. And he realized that there's lots of ways to be inappropriate, and nobody's going to be banging a table at your annual review saying, and he made us play Pictionary. Because, in fact, that probably, you probably didn't make him. You said, he made Pictionary available for us. Fire him. It just doesn't work. <laughs> OK, so uh, that's it for me. I, I don't want to run into anybody else's time. Uh, I don't want to run long. Thank you for your attention, and uh, that's it. <laughs>to hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxsnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, 
our listeners. 